Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Ezra chapter 5. I mentioned in the last episode that the chronology in chapter 4 can be very confusing, mostly because of the extended excursus on Samaritan opposition narrated in verses 6 to 23. If you bracket that content, however, the flow of the timeline becomes much more accessible to the reader. In fact, the Tyndale Old Testament commentary suggests doing that very thing. It says here, commenting on this entire paragraph in chapter 4, it says, it needs only the modern device of brackets opening at verse 6 and closing after verse 23, to make this clarity doubly clear. They are well worth inserting, closed quote. So maybe the simplest thing for you to do here, if you're one of those folks that listens to Into the Word with your Bible open in front of you, which is great, then follow that advice. Take your pen and insert a pair of brackets around Ezra 4, verse 6, through to Ezra 4, verse 23. Just understand that as a sort of aside or footnote detailing the long history of Samaritan opposition to this entire project. Now, put that aside, metaphorically speaking, and then read again the last verse of Ezra chapter 4. All right, so this is Ezra 4, 24. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia, close quote. All right, so that simplifies things a great deal. Let me summarize. Let me try to, I realize there's a lot of numbers here. There's a lot of dates. As I've said before, Ezra is one of those books where you either need access to an encyclopedia or some history books, but once you can write these numbers in the margin, once you can straighten out their chronology and put some numbers beside the names of this king and that king, the story does fall into place and make a fair bit of sense. All right, let me, let me see if I can simplify and summarize where we're at in this story. In 539 BC, Persia defeated Babylon and essentially absorbed that empire into its own. Cyrus became the emperor of most of the known world, which, of course, included the province beyond the river, encompassing Judah, Syria, and Palestine. In 538, Cyrus issues a decree authorizing the return of the Jewish exiles to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. In 537, the first wave of returnees sets out for Jerusalem. In the seventh month of 537, our late September or early October, the altar is rebuilt and the foundation of the temple rededicated. It appears that Sheshbazar laid the ceremonial first stone, though Jeshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel were doing all the heavy lifting in terms of leadership and coordination on the ground. So things get off to a really good start. But then in Ezra chapter 4, we meet a group of people that we come to know in the Bible as the Samaritans. They were religious and ethnic half-breeds, as it were, a mixture of the old Jewish poor of the land and the exiles from other nations that were brought in by the Assyrians to degrade the connection between the residents of the land and the God of the land. That's how they understood things. Now, their worship is described in 2 Kings 17 in a very unfavorable way. 
To use a modern analogy, these are like Christian cultists who believe in Jesus, but not in the way that the Bible teaches about Jesus. They have some good ideas and some really bad ideas. And Zerubbabel and Jeshua reject their offer of help, which results in a sustained campaign of discouragement and interference. Ezra 4 verse 4 puts it this way, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So the work on the temple was stalled in 537 BC, and it wasn't completed until 516 BC. That's 21 years. Now, verse 4 in Ezra 4 mentions Darius, king of Persia. Cyrus himself may have actually used Darius as an early throne name. We pick up the suggestion of that in the book of Daniel, but this is a different Darius. Cyrus died in 529 or 530 BC. We're not 100% sure there, but let's just say 530 BC, fighting barbarian tribes to the northeast of Persia. He was succeeded by his son, Cambyses. Cambyses goes off to war in Egypt, but then a guy claiming to be Cambyses' dead brother, Smyrtus, rises up in rebellion, and according to some reports, Cambyses goes mad when he hears that and commits suicide. Others say that he died by accident. Some even say that he was assassinated. We don't know for sure. This happened a long time ago. What we do know is that Darius, who was an officer in Cambyses' army, leads the troops back to Persia, where he defeats Pseudo-Smyrtes, which, by the way, is the best name in ancient history, and becomes the undisputed ruler of the entire Persian Empire. It takes him about two years to consolidate his position. But by around 520 BC, he is firmly established and beginning to set things back in order. It is in this context of chaos, unrest, uncertainty, and upheaval in the entire Persian Empire that this chapter, Ezra 5, must be situated. The Persian governor notices that after many years of inactivity, 17 years to be precise, the Jews are all of a sudden working feverishly on the temple using remarkably large stones, which makes the Persian governor a little bit nervous. Is this a temple or is this a fortress? Was this authorized? If so, by whom? So in this chapter, it's the Persian governor who writes back to head office, as it were, to get confirmation regarding the permission for this project. No doubt, <laughs> no doubt, prompted by those pesky Samaritans who are always whispering and conspiring to harass and obstruct the work. So that's where we're at in the story. The work on the temple has been on hold for 18 years. Now, under the encouragement of two prophets who we'll meet shortly, it's being resumed in earnest. So much so that it is actually perceived as a potential threat by a nervous governor living and reigning in very uncertain times. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. 
Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. All right, if you're trying to keep the timeline straight in your brain, you could probably write the number 520 B.C. in the margin of your Bible beside this paragraph. You could also include a cross-reference here to the books of Haggai and Zechariah mentioned in verse 1. Haggai and Zechariah are the reason that all of a sudden work has begun in the temple again. That's where they fit into this story. Haggai, for example, ministered for less than four months from August 29th, 520 B.C. to December 18th, 520 B.C. Again, we have fabulously precise dates for his ministry because he everything he does, he references to some date that's known to us in history. All right, so he, he ministered for just four months, less than four months. And his whole mission was to reignite the passion and commitment of the Jews to their original commission and mandate. And he was successful, which is why in 519 BC, after the four months of cattle prodding and cajoling from Haggai, the work on the temple begins again in earnest after such a significant delay. Again, if we're piecing this all together, then it appears that from roughly 537 to 519 BC, the temple project had been stalled because of the sustained harassment and interference of the Samaritans. Again, we, we talked about that from Ezra chapter 4. As such, with the temple project indefinitely delayed, the returning exiles put most of their time and energy into rebuilding their homes and restarting their businesses, right? I mean, if you can't work on Project A, you might as well work on Project B. That was what they were thinking. But it would appear from what we see in Haggai in particular that the opposition was not as insurmountable as most of the Jews and their leaders had come to assume. So the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, begin to rebuke the people and to suggest that the exiles had basically quit on the project and had convinced themselves that it just it couldn't be done. They couldn't press through the coordinated opposition of the Samaritans. They'd convinced themselves of that, really, so as to give themselves wholly to personal pursuits and enrichment. That's what they say. So in Haggai chapter 1, verse 3, for example, it says, Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag full of holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified says the Lord. That's Haggai 1, 3 through 8. So through the prophet Haggai, God says in essence, I'm not going to bless your homes, your fields, or your businesses until you re-engage with the work of the Lord. You work on my house and I'll work on your house. That's the, the basic thrust of Haggai's message to the people. And it worked. The work was resumed. And it was the perfect time, politically speaking, as we mentioned, the empire was in a state of transition. Everybody was focused on other things. And no one had explicitly forbidden them. They, they were just pressing against rumor and confusion. And of course, they had their original permission from Cyrus. So why not? Why not start again? Work until you're forced to stop. 
That's what they were saying. And the people got on board. They, they got back to it. They began to work. And Zerubbabel and Jeshua once again took the lead. Verse 3. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, What are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. All right, so as I mentioned a few minutes ago, once the rebuilding project is resumed by Zerubbabel and Jeshua, the Persian governor notices, and and he sees these huge stones. And given the uncertain political environment, he makes certain inquiries into the nature of the project. Now, he doesn't put a stop to the work, but he does send an official inquiry up the chain, as it were, back to head office. But the key is verse 5. The eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. So the work goes forward, albeit under a cloud of anxiety and uncertainty. Verse 6. This is a copy of the letter that Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shether Bozani and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report, in which was written as follows. To Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones, and timber is laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus. Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names for your information that we might write down the names of their leaders. And this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, He gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon And they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, Take these vessels, go, and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Then this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And from that time until now it has been in building, and it is not yet finished. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, Let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem. And let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. So Tatnai here does what any efficient government servant would be expected to do. 
He interviews the leaders of the project, he records their statements, and he bumps it up the chain for official response. He knows very well that the political situation is in flux. He knows very well that the new king may have a new policy. So he simply reports what is happening on the ground and asks for guidance. All he knows is that the Jews claim to have royal authorization for this project. But the work itself has lain dormant for the better part of 20 years. And now all of a sudden it has started up again for some unknown reason. And many of the local peoples are opposed to it. So that's what's happening here in the province of Judah, my lord. How would you like me to respond? That's the essence of the letter. And we have to wait until chapter 6 to hear the response. But while we wait, this is a very good time to open a discussion about providence and specifically how God uses the tool of human government to open and close, to punish and encourage, to empower and rebuke his covenant people. The role of government is actually a pretty common theme in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. God used the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, to punish his people for their sin and idolatry. The Jewish leaders, of course, know that very well. They mention that to Governor Tatnai in verse 12 above. Because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. So there's no ambiguity in the Bible on this point. In 2 Kings 24, verses 3 to 4, after telling us that the, the king of Babylon had come with his mighty army to besiege Jerusalem, the Bible says, Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. Close quote. According to Second Chronicles, which tells basically the same story, it wasn't just the kings of Judah that had become thoroughly corrupt. It was everybody. The problem was up and down the board. Second Chronicles 36 verse 14 says, All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. Close quote. So everyone was a mess. Everyone was unfaithful. The whole covenant project was stalled. So God sent a scourge and ordained a punishment. And he affected that scourge and punishment by the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar of pagan Babylon. That's what the Bible says. There's no way around that. In 2 Chronicles 36 verse 17, it says, Therefore... He brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword and the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. Close quote. So there's no way around it. According to the Bible, God will occasionally make use of pagan, unbelieving, unregenerate governments to inflict punishment and educational hardship upon the covenant community. He will use government as a wooden spoon to chastise, correct, humble, and sometimes temporarily sideline the people of God. That's in the Bible, in multiple places. A couple of generations previous to this episode, he had used the king of Assyria in exactly the same way. In Isaiah 10, God refers to Assyria as the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury 
against a godless nation, I send him. And against the people of my wrath, I command him. Close quote. So God is doing this. God does this from time to time, again and again in the Bible. He uses unbelieving governments to punish, chastise, and refine the people of God. And then here in this story in Ezra, we also see that from time to time, he uses pagan, unbelieving government to build up, protect, and encourage the people of God. It was Cyrus, king of the Persians, who originally authorized and funded this entire project. And as we will discover in the next chapter, it will be Darius, another Persian king, another pagan, unbelieving government leader who will confirm, legitimate, and further empower the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. So, government can be used positively or negatively according to the desire and purpose of God. Government isn't always evil and it isn't always good. The view of the Bible is more nuanced than that. It is ordained by God for certain purposes. We see that affirmed in Romans 13 in the New Testament. But it is also judged by God and held accountable by God. And it is often used by God to lift up or to press down, to protect or to punish, to work his purposes upon the people of God as a tool and agent of his providence. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.